Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. House prices in Australia are well beyond the reach of many. In Sydney, house prices have risen by a third, according to Domain's House Price Index, to a median value of $1.6 million, or a rise of almost a quarter, if you want to go with the official ABS statistics. That's still a big number. In fact, a phenomenal figure, isn't it? So how long can it keep on going like that, and how can we make it affordable for the next generation? Well, it's not going to be easy, but Steve Keane has an answer. We'll look at that today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. Well, the opening line of Steve Keen's housing policy for the new Liberals in Australia is, if the objectives of Australian housing policy was to drive house prices out of reach of young Australians, to reduce home ownership, to increase household indebtedness and to force non-owners into the private rental market, then it has been a resounding success. And uh, he's written a policy paper on how to address that affordability issue. We're going to look at it today. But look, the, the issue is, Steve, I mean, people with houses... They want them to be worth a lot of money, don't they? They don't want affordability. They want to leverage. Uh, you know, if you've lucky enough, been lucky enough to get on the housing ladder, then you want more houses, and they want to stop others getting on the housing ladder because they're going to be more people competing for those investment properties that they want to buy. I mean, more people are just going to put the prices up and make it worse for them. So straight away, you can forget about those people voting for you. Yeah, but that's the question of what, what percentage of the market is that? And the market now being a political market rather than just a a, um, a, a, a a property market. And this is where it was quite intriguing to go back and take a look at the percentage of ownership of houses uh, from the Bureau of, of the, the ABS's census covers. And if you go back to 1989, you'll find that 43% of people owned their houses outright. Fast forward to 2018, which was the last census, it's 30%. So there's been... But, but, you know, one third fall in the size of the percentage of people who own their homes outright. On the other side, it, you look at those right. who had mortgages. But on top of that, you have, yeah, those, those who are going to say that's people who finish paying. There'll be a lot of people with mortgages. Yeah, but, it, but the mortgages have increased, but not as much as the number of people who own their houses outright have fallen. So you find mortgage, people with mortgages have gone from 30% to 37%. And then we look at people renting. It's gone from 18% to 28%. So what we're getting is a, is a more insecure market. The one part of it that's winning out of all that are people who are renting to those who are uh, the, the landlords who are renting to those who have been forced, unable to buy them to the market now. And it, rather than being uh, one of the, some of those who are owners or are mortgages, they're now renting. And they're the main winners. But of course, again, we know that most of those people renting are renting to lose money because they're doing it to take advantage of negative gearing. So the rent they're charging is not enough to cover the interest rate on the uh, on the property, the, the, the money they've borrowed to buy those investment properties. And the whole thing is factored in in the belief you're going to have a continuing rising house prices. Well, exactly. And, and isn't, uh, isn't that part of the problem? I and mean, that won't always be the case. So won't this 
problem sort of correct itself. I know, I know people have been saying this for a long time, but it's been propped up <laughs> not just by, 40 years, yeah. by government policy, but also by uh, immigration. So if immigration to Australia slows and you get less demand for housing, you're going to have a lot of people wanting to sell houses at a premium price, the price they're expecting, you know, probably basing their, their retirement on, that those prices just may not be realised and that affordability issue starts to correct itself. Well, it's it's what's being pushed at the top of the funnel, isn't it? Well, this, what, what, what you have is a, is, a, is a market that could be on the precipice of either becoming completely unaffordable and so you, you lose a whole class of people who are willing to buy into the market, so you lose your buyers, which which white ends one end of the, end of the market, or you've got to insist on continuing migration into the country. Uh, and, of course, COVID has, has knocked that for six temporarily, uh, but the whole thing comes down to an immigration scam. And, uh, and and you look at it and think, this is this is not a healthy market. And the crazy thing is it's been made unhealthy to some large degree by government policy because the government only really started diving into the market in 1989. Uh, well, actually, 1983 to be go right back to the very beginning, the very first time that they, they, there was a grant given to people to encourage them to buy their first home. That was under under Hawke. I think that was the end of the date here. Pardon me, I was tapping on my computer as I was over Yeah, October 1983. That was the first time owners scheme. And the whole idea here was to give people money so that they could buy housing. And what did it do? It drove house prices up. So everything we've done has been making house prices get higher and higher and higher. And now we're, to, we're trying to, at the same time as enabling people to get into the market, I mean, when you want affordable housing, we're trying to make houses more expensive. So we're trying to achieve the impossible goal of expensive, affordable housing. And our attitude is saying, look, this has been a catastrophe. It's done the exact opposite of what policy is supposed to do. Let's look at a different policy. But aren't we going to see that they're going to go down with uh, with interest rate rises? So uh, interest rate rises will come to Australia because they're they're going to everywhere. They're, they're happening everywhere else in the world. And the RBA, even though they might believe they act independently, obviously they've 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 got to follow. Uh, you, you know, you, you can't have an interest rate that's low if it's high everywhere else. So interest rates will rise, perhaps by quite a bit. Isn't that going to knock the stuffing out of the housing market? It could, but it'll knock the stuffing out of the market and knock the stuffing out of people who borrowed money as well. And you could have a financial crisis. Mm. So we're saying we, 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 the only way out of this in a market sense is either to continue pumping up the market and making it less and less possible for people to buy into the, buy into the housing market in the very first place, or to have to drag people in from overseas and make this entirely a speculative uh, vehicle, as it has happened in London, for example, where virtually half the homes are unoccupied. They're just being used as ways of laundering money from uh, from you know resource wealth and and, and frankly crime elsewhere in the in the world. Uh, or if you if you do have a interest rate spike that causes house prices to fall, then people who've borrowed money in the belief they're going to make a profit out of selling a house on a rising market will make a loss instead, and you'll have a financial crisis. Mm. So we're saying we want to try to find a way out of this impasse, which means that people who've gained uh, by having an increased equity in their in their in their house over time because of rising house prices don't lose out when house prices fall. And while at the same time, because house prices do fall, and that's the objective of our policy, uh, because they do fall, they'll be more affordable for people who are currently forced to rent. Right. And you won't have the, the social breakdown we face otherwise, which I'm seeing actually even in my own family. I've got three members of my own family who've had to buy houses outside Sydney because they can no longer even imagine buying a house 
in in Sydney. Well, and guess this, what? And this is, I, I left Sydney because yeah. I could no longer afford it. You know, that's uh, yeah. it was a, definitely yeah. a factor in the decision to move out of of Australia, out of Sydney, which is a beautiful place to live. Uh, it was just the size of the house that we've got in uh, in, in leafy Surrey here would cost millions <laughs> if we were to buy it in Australia. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, and there's, there's another thing, isn't it? Isn't, isn't the market adjusting because people are just getting out? I mean, it's not great for the health and wealth of a city, is it, if, uh, if some of the great minds uh, are, for, are forced to leave? Um, but, um, but, it, but it is a bit of a correction. Isn't it? I mean, it, it has to reach a point where it just outprices itself. Yeah, and and the thing, I think we're we're at that level, and we're saying so it's not going to keep growing you, you on that basis. You, you can't sustain it, but if you, if you want to get out of this. We're, we're in a we're in a dilemma. We're in an impasse uh, where you want to find a way out of it that is not going to cause the whole economy to crash, and a way out of it that is not going to disadvantage um, people who have been disadvantaged by previous policy, which is fundamentally people who rent. Um, and you don't want people going bankrupt or the banks even failing. You want to find a way that means we can all pull out of this and go back to the sort of situation that used to apply in the 50s and 60s when uh, you when, when house prices were a lot lower and where people bought a house to live in, they didn't buy it as a speculative object. So your answer, your solution, and it's strange talking to you as a politician, which uh, there you go. which you know in a, in a few months you either will be or you won't be. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, either I'll you know I'll be talking to you in a complete I'll be giving you a much harder time or we'll just go back to how life was. Uh, but um, the your solution is a, a monetary reset and then rules that are going to limit the amount of mortgage debt. So trying to fix the short term issue and then trying to create the rules that stop it happening again. So uh, let's look at let's look at the last one first. Actually, limiting the mortgage debt. So based on the income earning potential of the property. So how, the obvious question, how do you determine the income earning potential of a property? Well, that's actually done very regularly. I don't know how well the Australian Bureau of is doing it these days, but they used to produce an imputed rental series. So you would have a price series which was based partly on properties which were being rented in a local government area and then extend that to other properties which weren't be rented and say the imputed rental rate in this local government area is X dollars per week. So uh, you, you do have actual data on houses that are being built to be rented out. Then you have other, other data on houses... Uh, which are being owner-occupied, but you can impute the rent that the owner would be paying if they were if they were renting it rather than buying it instead. So the, we do have a time series down to the local government area for an imputed rental rate, and we can then say, okay, given that level, you might have a bit of a you know one or two standard deviations around around that mean, but you can then say, given that imputed rental, the maximum amount of, in, of, of money that can be borrowed would be would initially we'd start at say 20 times the annual rental income of the property because that's pretty much the ratio that applies right now. Prices have been driven up so much that if you wanted to buy, uh, to get a mortgage to buy a house, uh, which you would otherwise rent, the mortgage would be roughly 20 times what you'd pay in rent to rent that property for one year. And we're saying that's too high. We want to bring it down over a period of years from about 20 to 1, which is just too high, down to about 10 to 1. And then at a 10 to 1 ratio, then you're talking both a more sustainable 
rental yield, but also a more sustainable price. But if you are attaching it to geography like that, because of course land value changes over time there'll be there'll be neighborhoods which are being regentrified or which are for for whatever reason are seeing their their values going up you could be tying that 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 ability for that uh, for that the, the that area to to see its land values increase because you're tying it down uh, to to the ratio that you're setting. I'm just wondering whether you could achieve that, whether you need to have that geographic consideration in there. You probably do, you but just tackle be, it? even so, the geographic will take care of itself in the sense that it'll be on a local government area basis. You wouldn't be saying uh, that the you know that there's a set rental price for the whole of Australia. You'd be saying there's a rental price for Vaucluse, there's a rental price for Cogra, a rental price for Perth, etc., etc., uh, at the local government area. And so there'd be, you know, a three-bedroom house in one region might have a higher price than a three-bedroom house in another because the rent is higher. Uh, for that house in that Oop. different region. So the rents them, it, it, the real thing about tying it to rental income is you're saying you, you want to base the capital price of something on the income that that capital can generate, not let it get totally out of control, which is what's happened with the speculation we've encouraged in the last 30 years. Couldn't you do the same thing, though, by just limiting the amount of money that uh, the, the banks uh, lend out? So, you know, limit the loans. Well, that's worked really well. But if you had a more radical approach to it like you're talking about so you said well okay we're going to attach it to the uh, to the income earning potential um but we are just set on a set on a national basis and we're going to say to commercial banks you know okay this is how much property is being sold in the market this is how much you can issue loans for almost exactly the same thing but you're actually limiting the commercial banks rather than setting the price oh, in, the, 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 in the housing the thing, market the thing i'm think i'm folk- because in your in your model, who's who's actually setting that? Who's actually saying, well, no, you you can't uh, you can't borrow for that much because uh, it's it's more than the uh, this ratio of loans. Well, it come out of the uh, it come out of the Bureau of Statistics. You simply say if the rental income of a property was say twenty thousand dollars per right, year. So, the bank, so so it's illegal. It's illegal for the bank to lend someone that money to to legal to, illegal control. Yeah, right. yeah. Oh, it's illegal for you to buy the property for a value that's more than that. Illegal. Illegal to borrow more money against it than ten times the rental income. Okay, and and the the reason for this is that when you look at what happens at the moment with people who want to buy a to borrow or pay for it, huh? Because so, I could get borrow, a, borrow right, but I could go to bank bank of mum and dad. Uh, and uh, and get some money from them because yep. you would because then it, if borrowing obviously is based on how much money you've all, you've already got you know the it's, surely it's got to be based on the t- final value of the well, house we're, rather we're than trying how to get leverage borrowing. out of the equation we're trying to get leverage mm. out of the equation of determining house prices because leverage has been the thing determining house prices for the last thirty or forty years and it's got us into this unsustainable. Uh, level of house prices. But if you're basing it on, uh, okay, we, we, I mean, people who are buying investment properties obviously are leveraging high as well, but it doesn't mean that people who've got money which is sitting around and they're wondering what to do with it, they could be saying, well, okay, we're going to buy up the, everyone else is constrained now by the by the price of houses, by how much they can borrow. So uh, we're in a better position here because we've got the cash sitting around. We can go and buy those houses and pay less than we would have had to before because people can borrow less. But we've why got the money. They buy them. Now, the, mm, the, the, yeah. the reason they're buying houses right now is they expect the house price to rise. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we want to break that the cycle between rising house prices and therefore a willingness to take on more to to, to pay higher prices for houses now. The the whole positive feedback uh, loop that is driving us into higher and higher levels of household debt. So we want to break that loop, and the only way to break it is to say that the uh, that there's no longer 
an encouragement to take on more debt than the person you're competing against to buy a property. Because even though you, you can talk about individuals who have a higher level of income uh, than others to buy a property, and they're going to buy those in expensive property, expensive suburbs. We're not going to change that. What we we're looking at is the vast majority of people, the, the middle class and, and, the, and, the, and the young and, and poor in the society, we want them to be able to afford to buy a house in regions they're going to look at that somebody who lives in Vaucluse is not going to look at. So we want to break the damage that's being done to the capacity of people to own a home in their own society. And one way to do that is to say, well, we're going to remove the incentive to borrow more money in buying a house because most of the time you're going to be competing against somebody much like yourself to buy a property. And at the moment, the way you win that competition is you borrow more money than the other guy. So if the other person is borrow, if your if other person is borrowing uh, a million and you buy one point borrow one point one million, you win, and therefore you actually want the banks to offer you more leverage. And mm. we're saying we're going to rule that out. The banks can't do it. If the if the property is going to rent for say you know, fifty thousand dollars a year, then the most anybody can borrow to buy it once we've got our ten to one rule in place is going to be five hundred thousand dollars. If you want to buy it against somebody else, you've got to save more money than the other person. So it breaks down that encouragement that we currently all face to want to be in more debt. And that's the last thing anybody really wants to be in. Yeah. You only want to be in real more debt because you think you're going to make a capital gain out of it. Let's get that out of the housing market. And that's that's the objective of that particular part of the policy. So that debt, of course, expands the money supply. Does that matter? Does that factor into the equation at all? No, it doesn't. You <laughs> well, because, it doesn't. It, because most of the money that's coming is coming from commercial banks that are issuing mortgages. Mm-hmm. That's how the money supply is increasing, isn't it? That's true. That's, that's how the money has increased in the fast. And we said that's a mistake. We've allowed mm. far too much of the money supply to be created by banks financing speculation. Yeah. If, if the should banks be, were should be provided by governments. You know, so spending it on but useful government things. And also by banks providing working capital for corporations. I'm very happy to have banks create money to enable a, a, a business to start, which looks like it's going to be profitable to both the bank and, mm. the, and the business owner. Does that still to enable, happen? you know... Huh? Did that still, well, do banks it, still do it that? won't happen while banks think they can make money by financing speculation on bricks and mortar. Yeah. And this is the, the brain debt level of Australian banking these days. I mean, I, I've had, being who I am, I've had quite a few interesting conversations with people who tell me things they shouldn't tell me over time. So one person who told me things they shouldn't tell me was the guy who designed most of the software that's involved in the 30-second evaluations of um, of, uh, of, of loan applications, I won't say for which bank. Um, and he, he said that ba- basically- Which bank? They, they literally, the target was to get the evaluation time down to 30 seconds worth of filling out a form, bang, you get the answer back. Mm. Uh, another guy was an ex-bank manager who uh, met him as a taxi driver. He said his main job these days was driving around, not to check and see whether a property re- met the standards that are supposedly stated on the contract of sale, to just see if there was actually a bloody house on the property in the first place. So the standards have <laughs> dropped like a brick, you know, and it dropped like a brick is a good analogy. So you, you want use to Google and save a lot of time. You get Google Earth to do that, couldn't you? Just uh, if there's yeah. so, so, so get get we get rid of that particular encouragement to leverage and speculation right. by a rule that says you, you can't use leverage anymore to beat your opponent in buying a property. You've got to save money instead. But don't people generally? Uh, and you know, I'm, I'm, I must admit, I'm guilty of this as well. You you get to a certain age where you're starting to think, well, we need to add value to the house, and you're not thinking about yourself. You're actually thinking about the kids. Uh, but, and, and, but you're also thinking about your your retirement as well. Uh, so you so you buy up 
um, based on how much you're going to you're going to pass over. And I'm just wondering, you know, the the issue we've got obviously is intergenerational inequality. That's the that's the core issue here, isn't it? It's the fact that it's, that it's, it's not, that we actually make an appeal directly to that and say, you know, we we can't have this increase in intergenerational inequality getting any worse than it is because we'll break down the social compact of the country if we let it get any worse. But, you, if, but if, you, if you pushed up inheritance tax, and uh, then you know, that would factor into... Because uh, people are, aren't necessarily making money out of their investment properties, are they? For example, they're looking at it based on the, the value of that property going up and they're thinking about uh, how that's going to get passed on. But if you, if you had higher inheritance taxes, which is, I know is a massively unpopular idea with most people, but then uh, that would be factored into... Uh, capital investment, wouldn't it, for people? And they might be less keen to, to to invest in many properties if they know that whatever money they're going to make, they're going to lose it in tax at the end of the day anyway. Yeah, well, that, you notice that a capital tax wasn't part of the policy. And I, I, again, I can see uh, attempts to tax and control tend to cause, lead to attempts to evade control. And, mm. and also, of course, gives you a policy which is ultimately unpopular, Taxing, taxation is always unpopular. So it ends up shooting yourself in the foot if you're trying to bring about actual social change. Leading with the tax uh, is not often the best, best way to go about it. So we've done the twofold. One is the control on the leverage, and the other is one we haven't started talking about yet, which we should discuss, yeah. and that's the monetary reset. reset. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're getting on to that. Just one more thing, though, on, 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 oh, on the price of houses. <laughs> What about because uh, this isn't going to ad- address the issue of how many houses are built? It, it in fact, it's going to uh, constrain the income potential, which could mean sh- uh, developers are less keen to build. So, could you actually be constraining supply with this policy? And just before you answer that, what about social housing? Because Australia has bugger all of yeah. it on, a, on an international scale. And if you actually got up to the point where... So I'll give you some, some figures, for example. Okay. In Australia, less than 5% of all housing stock is social housing. In the Netherlands, for example, a third of all houses are social housing. Hmm. So if you, if you move from 5% to 30% or 35%, You'd see house prices go down, wouldn't you? Because the because the a lot of the, uh, the those people those investment properties that people were uh, renting out would suddenly find that their rental market has now gone to uh, gone to social housing, and that would that would have a that would have two benefits. One, it would mean that there's still that demand for houses to be built, uh, and secondly. Um, you know, you you are helping people who are struggling. Look, I'm definitely in well, favour of more know, social housing. And again, if you look at the Australian stats, we lead that that uh, document with. There's been a, pretty much a halving in the level of people with uh, in, in government as opposed to private rental. So yes, there's been a, a decline in the extent to which people have social housing, whether that's social housing they rent or social housing they buy. And like Singapore, which is one of the world's most successful capitalist nations, has one of the highest levels of social housing. So it's, it's actually pulling housing out of the equation of, of a way to make wealth and saying, if you want to make, you know, create wealth, create a business rather than creating a housing bubble. So they're definitely not against uh, having social housing. That will be part of what we write up as overall. But the, the focus of this policy was making housing affordable again to buy. Mm. And so we're focused just on reducing the leverage with the second policy we've discussed mm. and the monetary reset to mean that people who've gained out of the bubble so far don't lose 
because we're going to now bring house prices down. Right, but what about that? My point about constraining supply. If you, if 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 houses are going to be worth less, aren't you going to see developers less keen to build, and so you just have end up with less? Unless well, they're not particularly keen to build anyway to begin with. I mean, the, the extent to which there's land banking and so on in the Australia is, is quite extreme. Uh, but uh, the, one of the most interesting surveys. I've seen on that front is the Demographia survey. I don't know if it still exists, but it was started by a New Zealand property developer. And he was very angry about the level of house prices, that they're too high. They reflect, um, they don't reflect the cost of building the house, they reflect the, the cost of the land, which is driven up by speculation. And his argument was that a house should cost about three and a half years salary. And he thought that was sustainable. And the leverage level we're talking about is also in the same ballpark. So it should be profitable to make a house for something of the order of three times the annual income of the person buying the house. And then you've got, you know, that's a much lower level of cost than we're talking about to buy property now because 90% of the price you're paying is for the inflated value of the land. And that reflects the leverage that's been developed by uh, the amount of borrowing that people are doing to compete with each other to buy those properties. So even though, I mean, houses are so expensive and so unaffordable, we've still got 65% of homes in Australia owner-occupied. That's sort of, they're the figures I've got, and that sort of goes with the figures you had about how many have been paid outright and how much are, uh, are, are still paying off their mortgage. In Germany, very capitalist economy, 51% are owner-occupied. Same for Hong Kong. In Switzerland, it's 41%. You know, lots of these countries have got used to uh, um, you know, the idea that you, you rent. Yeah, well, the, but the thing is, there, I mean, there, that's another thing about land tenure in Australia. Rental rights are dreadful in Australia. Uh, in Germany, I think you, mm. you probably know this, uh, when yeah, you're a renter in Germany, you're expected to supply yeah. the kitchen, okay? Because it's a capital investment and you're expected to be there for 10 or 15, 20 years. And you have rental rights. I mean, you can't be thrown out. You don't have to ask the landlord whether you can bang a nail into the wall to hang a painting. You just go ahead and do it. So the, the rental rights in Australia, as well as, as, well as the um, uh, prices being too high, the rights for tenants are mm. dreadful. And that's one reason that drives people out of the market, you know, out of the rental market in the first place. They, they, they want to go and... and, and, uh, and uh, and, and buy a property because they're sick and tired of being screwed mm. by a landlord. So we, we, we have to change the power relations between landlords and renters, as well as changing the power relations between the banking sector and the housing sector. Right. The Great Reset. I'll leave this for the flu. Hey, finally got there. A half hour discussion. We've only got five minutes left, so maybe we have to come back to this. But look, I can see this, this idea is that, yes, we, we try and balance things out. So if you we try and get rid of as much debt as possible. So if you've got debt from housing, we put a slug of money into your bank account. And uh, if you haven't got debt from housing, well, congratulations, you get the same slug of money. So you've got more money that you can go out and spend. I can see how this is going to go down in the media. Everyone's going to go, ah, free money. Well, what a crackpot idea that is. Uh, but um, what is the, I mean, if you did it, it would be a shock to the to the system, wouldn't it? If you did this all at once, you'd have a, a, a lot of extra capacity, a lot of extra money, which presumably is going to be sitting with the, uh, the RBA's balance sheet, ultimately, the government issues bonds, so as we've been seeing during the COVID crisis, the government the government issues bonds to cover the debt that they've incurred by paying all this money to everybody. The uh, the RBA buys up those bonds, so it sits on their balance sheet. So it's, in effect, that's new money that's been created. So there would be been this rapid expansion in the money supply. There's going to be implications for that if it's done all at once. And that means you haven't read the policy carefully enough because that's modelled and shown that it, with, without leaving out interest rates being paid on the bonds, there'd be no change in the money supply. The idea is to swap 
money which is currently based by private debt and base it back it by fiat instead. So if you if you tell people that they if you if you make it a necessity that the money you get is used to pay your debt down, then your Oh, right. So it disappears from the bank. Right. Got it. Got you. Yeah. yeah. The money remains constant, mm. okay, without interest being paid on the bonds themselves. Except, right. Except for those who don't have paid. that debt. So you're okay. still expanding it. But, those, that's, but that's for the people who have the debt that, that are paying it down. Those people who don't have debt, that would be new bonds. money. They get bonds. They get bonds. Right. Okay. 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 They don't get money. Uh, now, the, the idea is that those bonds could be sold to purchase a house at a later stage. They could be part of a deposit for a house. But the whole idea is you're not creating money out of it. What you are doing, and this, this is what... So you're getting like a property, a property bond. Huh? Or so you could, you yeah, get well, like it, a, well, it's a government bond. If, if, yeah. if, at the moment, we're doing exactly the same thing that is done right now for the government to create create money when it runs a deficit and then to issue bonds so that the reserves which are created by the deficit are converted into bonds for the banks and the bonds then earn interest for the banks. Now, the bonds can also be sold by the banks to the public. And when the banks do that, that reduces the money supply because people pay for those bonds by handing over their deposits. Uh, the deposits fall, so the money amount of money in circulation falls. Their bonds rise. They've got bonds which earn an income for them independently. Uh, but we do the same thing now. The bonds would go to people who currently have uh, no, uh, no, no income, not no income, but no, effectively no, no bank balance. They would be getting a monetary reset out of this. Uh, which would make compensate for the fact that, as renters, they've been screwed for the last 40 years. So Joe Lindsay uh, raises a few interesting questions. One is, how do you determine who gets the money? But more important... Everybody does. Right. So, <laughs> but that's, uh, that's easier than it sounds. I mean, uh, I probably shouldn't say this, but my wife got uh, $1,200 from the Australian government just because she holds an Austra- uh, an American government, I should say, because she holds an American passport. Well, don't say the American. Now you've got the green card after you. That's a bad Yeah, well, that's right. I probably shouldn't have said that. Uh, but, but uh, mm. you know, but the, the point is that, you know, the, the money, and we know when money was paid by the Australian government as well, it went to people who weren't living in the country necessarily. So it's, uh, but I guess, you know, there's going to be people who benefit fit just on the on the periphery who probably shouldn't in, in reality how simple is that going to be i just i could see that that opens itself to to corruption uh particularly not, when, not, just not a, just a, as we saw for example with payments money. being made for covid you know there's now a question of people who got it who shouldn't and uh, you know enormous legal action that's going to follow well if everybody's getting the same amount of money uh, mm. you know that, that, that's that's the main leveler uh, you no matter how many houses you own no matter how much wealth you have you get exactly the same amount of money as somebody else. And well, what so sort of figure are we talking about? The same amount of money. Pardon? What sort of number? What, what's what sort of number are we talking about? Well, the, the, if you wanted to reduce the level of debt by a hundred percent of GDP, which is pretty much what you want to do, housing debt right now is about household debt is about a hundred of the order of one hundred and ten, hundred and twenty percent of GDP. It should be down at ten percent. 20% of GDP, which is what it was before this speculative bubble began. So you'd be looking at injecting something equivalent to one year's GDP of money into the economy in such a way that you didn't change the money supply. You simply converted from being backed by, by debt right. to backed by fiat money. So how much would that be per person, just roughly? Be, I worked that out for America at one point. It was about $100,000 per person. Right. Okay. So I've got, uh, I've got a... I wonder whether that's enough to make a difference. So I've got a... I've got a I've got a debt on my mortgage of, for example, just picking a figure from half a million. You mm. give me a hundred million, 
Uh, you give me a hundred thousand. Hundred thousand. I know. Exactly. You give me a hundred. You give me a hundred thousand. That's what I meant to say. So I've I've still got debt of four hundred thousand. Yeah, um, you've still got the other debt. Yeah, it's still there. And if I didn't, um, and if, so most people would most people would still find themselves in debt after the process. But those who didn't have debt would have a cash in, would have a, would, have, would have bonds. And largely, when you look at how we've screwed the rent, people who rent have never gotten any money out of the government. Okay? They're the ones who have been screwed overall, and they're a rising percentage of the population. They're certainly the younger part of the population. So we'd be compensating for 40 years of them being screwed by all the policies being directed towards older people and towards uh, people who have have property, and we're getting the property less uh, money to compensate for them being discriminated against right. for the but last he, 40 but years. But given 100,000 is a lot of money, but I'm just wondering whether it's enough to make any difference because with the without the second or the first part where you're tr- trying to limit uh, the, the, the value of a loan to uh, to the rental value of a property, I, if you if you told me you were going to give me a hundred thousand, I'd just pay off my house that little bit quicker. But I might use that uh, use that to leverage against buying another property as well. Given you know the housing market. Well, what we do is we say it, it can't be done that way. Okay, um, it's you know you either pay your debt off or you get government bonds which might earn you five percent interest, that sort of thing. Um, it, 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 and it's feasible then to say well those bonds could be used as a deposit for buying a house because there'd probably be a lot of landlords who'd be wanting to sell rental properties. Uh, and you want to be able to, you know, enable people to have a deposit to buy those rental properties. So it's feasible to do that way. That way, uh, but overall, the objective is to reduce house prices uh, without reducing the equity that people currently have in their house. We haven't really spoken about this properly. So if you have a house, no, because this is a topic that we could talk about for two hours. Isn't owe, it? But just uh, just finishing finishing sorry? off on this on this point because we've we've run out of time today. But maybe we need to come and revisit again next week. But if yeah. I've got that if I've got that half a million mortgage and you give me a hundred thousand, so I now have a I now. A, I've now got a mortgage of four hundred thousand with a with a property that's still worth what it was uh, last week. Uh, I'm going to go to the. I don't know how you'd stop me saying, "Well, okay, I'm going to go to the bank now because my mortgage is less. Uh, I've got more equity, so I can invest in another property." Thank you very much. I don't know how you. And we're going to say we limit the amount of money you can borrow. Okay, it's it's why it takes two policies to do it, not yeah. just one. You've got to limit the capacity for that speculation to happen again. Yeah, you can't do one without the other. Absolutely. Yeah. That's right. You've got to do them together. Yeah. All right. Okay. All right. Very good. Well, let's see how you go with <laughs> that. I want to return do, to. Do you know, but the problem is, Steve, I mean, and, and um, I'm sure it's brilliant, um, but it's uh, it's not bite-sized chunk stuff for a politician, is it? No, it's not. It's not. But what we're having is bite-sized chunk uh, chunks for people who are currently renting and can see no possibility of them getting into the market in the future. And this is a way of fighting back, in effect, rather than having to decide to you know, pull up stumps and move to the back of Burke uh, to be able to buy or, a property, which is what they face yeah, at the or, moment, with all the resentment that that's going to raise to the social contract in Australia. Yeah, or, or, but, that's how, but that's how property moves, isn't it? People get outpriced from cities, I know a lot of people who moved to Brisbane, which is also very expensive, but they moved there simply because they couldn't afford to live in uh, in, in Sydney. So, uh, so it's a little bit mm. cheaper in in Brisbane. So the Brisbane economy starts to boom. Uh, the, the Sydney economy starts to wither, uh, and and you know, so it goes on since the dawn of time. Mm, I think it's since the dawn of property speculation, <laughs> not since the dawn of time. <laughs> All right, very good. All right, leave it there. Good to talk, Steve. Uh, we'll definitely revisit this again. See you next week. Okay, mate. Okay, bye.
The issue is, of course, as we started the whole interview, 67 or 65 percent of people in Australia are homeowners uh, and uh, you're telling them that they're going to see their values of their properties decline. That's going to be a difficult one to win, isn't it? Uh, But the sad thing is, of course, there's really no discussion happening at all about this in Australia and it's the sort of thing you obviously do need to talk about. That's it for this week. Back again with Steve next week. I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.